Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7. <clears throat> book of Daniel in chapter 7, for those who maybe haven't been here with us when I've had the opportunity to preach, uh, we are looking at the throne scenes of God in heaven in order to encourage us in relationship to the theme for the conference, Great is the Lord. And we've considered four of those so far uh, this morning, and then again tonight we want to consider the last two of those. And again today what we'll do is go back and focus more upon the Lord himself. But the one we want to consider today is found in Daniel chapter 9, <clears throat> um, verse 9 down to about verse number 14. And we're going to look at that under the title, Heaven's Rule Over History. And um, you should have a little half-sheet handout for that. Um, if you don't have one, I'm not sure where they're at. Someone's got them. Okay, everyone, everyone have one? Okay, again, <clears throat> that handout is, I didn't design that handout so much to, uh, for you to take notes on. You can do that. I just designed it so you would have it and you could follow where I was going in relationship to some of the details. Sometimes if a lot of detail is there, it's easy to get lost in that. <clears throat> I didn't want us to do that, so that's there for your help. <clears throat> and the blanks are there to, again, keep us all together and uh, anticipate what's coming next, so we're together on that. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer <clears throat> and ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are a gracious God and you are kind, merciful, long-suffering. We thank you for the things of yourself that we've been able to learn over these days and we pray that now in this session as we learn of you again that you'll minister this truth to our heart and encourage us with it. Lord, do quiet our hearts right now as we pray and enable us to focus upon the things of yourself and might the Holy Spirit uh, give us uh, wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to read a section of this chapter but I simply want to begin by pointing our attention to verse 9. The scripture says here, and of course in just a moment as I say, I'll put this within its context. But verse 9, Daniel is writing and he says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool, his was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him, that's unto the Son of Man, there was given unto him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. 
You may be aware that there are several, there are various theories of history which man has devised to explain the history of his existence upon the earth. Some people explain history in sort of an evolutionary fashion, and that history just evolves over time. Some historians see history in sort of a cyclical fashion, kind of an endless repetition of the same sequence of events just over and over. Others look at history and explain it as basically meaningless. It's just chance happenings with no real purpose or intent. But the Bible presents history differently. The Bible's presentation of history is that it centers around the kingdom of God. That there are people on the earth, and those people grouped together in nations, but ruling over it all is the kingdom of God. And the Bible's presentation of this kingdom is that the Ancient of Days, the sovereign ruler of the universe, sits on a throne, and from it he intervenes in human history to bring about his intents and his will and his purposes. And one way in particular that he exercises rule in human history is by eventually anointing a king and giving him a universal kingdom that is everlasting and indestructible. And that's what's here in Daniel 7. In our study of the throne scenes in heaven, we were presented with a sketch of God's kingdom in the three verses that we read this morning. And that is the significance of this throne scene in Daniel. In these verses, Daniel, or God, is not presented as the omnipotent creator, as in Revelation 4. He's not presented as the gracious and good lawgiver in Exodus 24. He's not presented as the righteous judge that Micaiah knew. And he's not presented as the holy sovereign as we saw in Isaiah 6. In these verses, he's presented as the sovereign ruler over all human history. And from beginning to end, God's throne rules over all men and all nations. And if we want to explain and understand history, then we can do it in these terms, and we'll have to do it in these terms. Simply, heaven rules over history. The kingdom of God rules over all men and all nations. Now, to fully understand this throne scene and its presentation of that truth, let's put it into its context. Okay, let's go back to verse number one, and I'm going to read a couple of verses and skip down through the chapter and make some comments, and then, of course, we're going to broaden all this. And if you're trying to follow all this on the outline, I haven't even got to the outline yet. Okay, so just hang on. We're still in the blank space under the title. Okay, all right. And, and, and just to help you, we'll be in that blank space for a little while. <laughs> Not too long now, but a little while. Verse number one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream 
and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. All right, here we go. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And then in Daniel, or excuse me, then in verse 4, Daniel sees the first beast, which is a lion. And verse number 5, he sees the second beast, which is like to a bear. In verse number 6, there's the third beast that he saw, <clears throat> and that's like a leopard. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's the fourth beast, and he's a little bit uncertain how to describe that because that beast was unlike the other three in a number of ways. In particular, it had ten horns, and then one of those horns was more prominent than the others. And of course, verse 8, if you're just glancing with your eyes, verse 8 actually then describes that one horn. Now, let me interject <clears throat> at this point. Let me, let me inject this thought into the reading before we move on. Most of you are aware that what Daniel has seen was paralleled in another dream that Nebuchadnezzar had some 50 years prior to this in Daniel chapter 2. And that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, in that dream he saw an image that was constructed in the shape of a man. You remember that. There was the head of gold. There was the chest and arms of silver. The belly and thighs of that statue were made of brass and the legs were of iron and its feet were part iron and part clay. Now, from Daniel, or excuse me, from Nebuchadnezzar's, from, from Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, verses 36 to 48, and in chapter 7, verses 15 and following, which we won't read, you know that ne what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a portrait of the world's empire from Nebuchadnezzar to the fall of Rome, a period of about a thousand years. And those empires consisted of Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire and Greece and Rome. Now students of the Bible are interested in that, but what really interests those who study the Bible is the stone that eventually rolled down and struck that image on the feet and toppled all of those empires. And Daniel, we won't take the time to go back there, but Daniel does refer to that in Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 44 when he talks about that, that in those days, maybe I will read that, he says in 2.44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, those four and the others, it will consume all of them, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof made sure." 
So Daniel provides a little bit of an interpretation there for us. He tells us about that. And as it turns out, the stone is actually a kingdom with a king. And what is unique about that kingdom is that it is universal, it is eternal, and it's indestructible. Now, you have this vision of these beasts, and this vision parallels the one that Nebuchadnezzar had. Except, of course, as many of you know, chapter 2 presents what man sees, sort of the human side of those great empires, and chapter 7 presents what God sees and emphasizes the beast-like, vicious nature of those empires and those kingdoms. But combining these two accounts, folks, what is portrayed is a history of the world's empires from Nebuchadnezzar until God sets up another kingdom. That stone, that other kingdom, which then destroys all of the nations of the world and rules over them. Now, we have read of the four beasts, or the four kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's image. But now, let's read of the stone. It doesn't refer in verses 9 and following, it doesn't use the term stone, but let's read of the stone and that kingdom which God raises up to rule and reign over all human empires. And it's that which we're interested in because of the throne scene. Verse 9, let's go on. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now, are you, use your imagination again in relationship to this throne in heaven. You combine Revelation 4, okay, a little bit of Exodus 24, Isaiah 6, a little bit here tonight, Ezekiel 1. You're getting a little bit more of a composite picture of what's going on up there. So you've got the Ancient of Days, and he's sitting there. Of course, verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. But note, in relationship to the empires of the world, the judgment was set and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. And we'll come back to all of this in a moment. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame, as concerning the rest of the beasts, the other three beasts, the other three kingdoms, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, I saw the stone. I saw in the night visions and beheld one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him and there was given him just what Nebuchadnezzar saw and what Daniel interpreted in Daniel 2. There was given to him a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, as I mentioned, folks, Daniel was being given revelation regarding the whole sequence. The whole sequence. 
the whole sequence. Daniel was being given a vision, folks, regarding the whole sequence of Gentile history following the conquest of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. God is foretelling kingdom futures for Daniel. And it's in verses 9 through 14 that we get a fuller revelation of the stone or of the divinely appointed kingdom that will smash the whole image of Gentile empires. And the divine inauguration of that kingdom and its crushing of all human kingdoms is presented to us here in terms of a sovereign ruler, verse 9, officiating over a heavenly court, verse 10, which is ready to dispense judgment, verses 11 and 12. And then the king's kingdom. So, just to round out a little bit for us about the throne scene, let's go back just for a moment. Let me make some comments on verses 9 through 14 so we get a, a little clearer picture of the throne of this sovereign ruler and then we're going to move from there to the rest of what you have on your outline. In verses 9 and 10, we have the Ancient of Days officiating over a heavenly scene where books are opened and a judgment takes place, and it's the nations that are in court being judged. Verse 9, there's the Ancient of Days. It says that he has a garment that is intense, pure white, which is depicting, of course, his moral purity particularly in relationship to the judgment that he will give. His judgment and verdict will be righteous and just. His hair is like pure wool, speaking of age and wisdom. And God has the ability to judge wisely because of his eternality and his omniscience. And his throne looks as if it is flaming with fire, and it has wheels which are ablaze with fire. The fire, of course, depicting the fiery judgment of God's wrath and the wheels depicting mobility or the universal authority of God's rule. His omnipresence as he confronts these nations in judgment. He knows everything about them. And he's been there from the beginning to the end. And then, and we won't take a lot of time here, but then in verse 10, John further sees a river flowing from before God, a river of fire. Of course, depicting judgment and surrounding the throne of the Ancient of Days is referred to here. It says in verse number 10, there are thousand, thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000. There are thousand, thousands or literally a myriad of myriads of angelic beings. How many is that? Well, we're given a little picture of that when it says, when it says 10,000 um, 10,000 times 10,000. How many is that? A million. More? Got to be more than a million. 100 million, if my math is right. Not sure who's here. Is anyone here math? We lost Mrs. Trumbull. She was the math expert. All right. But 100 million. And 100 million angels are standing before the sovereign ruler, ready to do his bidding in this courtroom scene to mete out judgment upon the vicious empires that have existed, who haven't listened to his word, gone their own way. And in verses 11 and 12, we read a little bit of that judgment. In verse 11, we're, that we're referred to this horn in verse 8, 
this last world ruler of the last world empire, and he's judged. And then the other three, verse 12, it refers to them. Those three beasts had their authority taken as way as well as that horn, but they were allowed to continue in some sense. And whereas the fourth empire and its closing ruler were fully destroyed at the time of this divine judgment, when the other three were brought to their end, they continued on in some sense that was not true of that fourth one. So these human empires and Gentile nations of Nebuchadnezzar's statue are broken in pieces and like chaff are scattered to the wind. And it's at that point, now in verse 13, that Daniel sees Nebuchadnezzar's stone become a great mountain and an everlasting kingdom. In verse 13, it's almost as if Daniel stands in awe as one like the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. And of course, the Son of Man here is a reference to Jesus Christ. That was his favorite designation of himself in his earthly ministry. And when he used it of himself, he's identifying himself as this personage. He wasn't just talking about that he was a human figure, but he's identifying himself as this personage, as we're going to see in a moment, as the sovereign ruler's king who he's going to set upon his holy hill, Psalm chapter 2. But really, what really captures Daniel's attention is in verse 14. As Daniel watches, now can you picture this? I mean, look at your imagination, think of your imagination. As Daniel watches, this personage, the Son of Man, approaches the Ancient of Days, the sovereign ruler on the throne. And he receives a regal, authoritative bestowment which is described for us under three aspects. Number one, there was given to him dominion, a reference to his ruling authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There was given to him glory or honor that would accompany that authority, and there was given to him a kingdom, a designation for, the organized, for an organized form of government. In other words, folks, the Son of Man is granted all of the features of absolute rule in parallel with that exercised by the rulers of the preceding kingdoms, but that which was crushed. And then Daniel noted these characteristics about this kingdom. It would be a universal kingdom. It would rule over all people, nations, and languages. They'll have to be in submission to the king. Number two, it would be an everlasting kingdom. And number three, it would be indestructible. Both re with regards to time, it says it will not pass away. And it will be indestructible in relationship to its enemies. It will not be destroyed. In other words, no one will ever conquer it, as it talks about later on in the chapter in verse number 27. And, of course, all of this is in contrast to the preceding four empires of Gentile nations, empires with limited rule that were temporary and ended up getting conquered and destroyed. This kingdom's completely unlike that. Now, what we have just noted in a hurried form, what we've just noted is more folks than a passing vision which Daniel was given in order to comfort him and God's people as they were in captivity. It has done that. I'm sure it was a great comfort to them that even though they were in captivity to the world empire that time, the people of God did not need to fear concerning their future or their existence because there is a sovereign on the throne that rules over all empires and they'll be okay. 
And I'm sure there was some comfort to that. But folks, here, what is here is a sketch of God's kingdom on a much grander and greater scale. And what I want to do in order to give us a greater appreciation of the throne and the sovereign on it is take the remainder of our time and survey in a condensed form the larger picture of God's rule over all human history. From before the world all the way right into eternity. And to do that, what we're going to do is survey several passages in chronological order. And folks, if you will follow this, and this won't be hard. This won't be hard to do. If you'll follow this, you'll have a concise overview of God's rule over, over all human history. So we're going to do this. And I just want to point out as we do that I'm indebted, of course, to several resources that have helped in, in somewhat of the outline here. Not, I mean, the, the, the points are kind of mine. But some of the wording that I'm going to use, some of the thoughts I'm going to, I've, I've drawn from some other resources, particular one in particular that my older brother did. And it's also always great to have a brother, older brother who's a lot smarter than you are. And then he says, you can use whatever I have and don't even say it was from me. Just take it and use it. So uh, I'm off to a great running start here. But I'm just going to skim the cream off of some. So, but folks, let's survey God's rule over human history. Because we're part of that. Do you know when the first attempt was made to overthrow and to usurp God's throne and rule? We're talking about world empires and nations. When was the first time, when was the first attempt to usurp God's throne and God's rule? Well, that actually took place way back in Isaiah 14. Go over there with me. Not so much that Isaiah 14 is way back, but it took, way ba it took place way back, long before the world ever came to existence. As you're aware, folks, the first reference to the reign of God actually comes to us in terms of the fall of a created being named Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, 12, we read this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Which is a term, that, a title that means light bearer. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? So here is Lucifer, as you know, being reference to his being cast out of heaven. And of course, we wouldn't have known this if, I mean, there was no man here. We wouldn't know this if God hadn't told us. But God's giving us a little bit of insight into history. Into history. But note verse 13 and verse 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, and now this being, Lucifer, is going to make five statements that begin with I will, and I've got them underlined in my Bible. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God the angels of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will, notice this one, I will be like the most high. What is the significance of Lucifer's reference to being like the most high? Well, folks, the first time that title occurs in Scripture is in reference to God back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 19. 
And in that passage, Abraham is returning from his rescuing Lot from the kings. And in his return, he met kind of this mysterious figure by the name of Melchizedek. And you may not need to, you don't need to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 14, verse 19, I want you to listen to what Melchizedek said. It says, and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abraham of the most high God. Now, what did Melchizedek mean by that? The most high God? Here's what he meant. Blessed be Abraham of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. This title, the Most High God, is a reference to the fact, not that, that he's high, but it's a reference to the, in what way? He's the possessor of heaven, and he's the possessor of earth. And of course, Melchizedek wasn't referring to Abraham being that way. He was referring to God. God, the Most High, is the possessor. So here is God, the Most High, and he rules over heaven and all earth, but that reign and that rule is now being challenged by Lucifer. And so the Most High must cast him out of heaven. But historically, here is the first fall. The first fall, of course, in relationship to man is in Genesis 3. But the first fall within history is the fall of Lucifer. And it begins with his ambition to usurp the throne of the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, how does that relate to human history? Well, I want you to go second with me, with me to Ephesians chapter 2. With me to Ephesians chapter 2. We have this spirit being, Lucifer, Satan, the devil. And in history, he sought to usurp the throne of the one who was the possessor of heaven and earth. What does that have to do with human history? Well, note Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according, you Ephesian believers, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Same spirit being as back in Exodus 14. But do you know what he's doing here? The Bible refers to this in verse 2. It says there that the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And you've probably heard people explain that. That word worketh is the word for energize. It's the word ergon. Up north we have ergon energy. They supply the electricity. This is that word. The spirit that now energizes the children of disobedience. Who are the children of disobedience? Well, look at the next line in verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. And the we, of course, is Paul including himself with the Ephesian believers and all of us. 
Folks, we all were children of disobedience. You know why? Because we all were energized by this spirit personage named Lucifer. Question, what did he energize us to do? Well, listen to the Lord's own words in John 8, 44. Year of your father the devil, and the works of your father ye will do. Of course, he was a murderer from the beginning. You know, it goes on and talks about that. But the works or the desires of your father ye will do. And folks, one of those desires that, as it plays out is that after the fall, people energized by Satan have the same ambition that he had. And that was to usurp God's authority. And therefore, all of human history is simply a record of man's rebellion against the throne. In heaven, before the earth was ever created, here's Lucifer, and his desire was to usurp the throne of God. He's cast out of heaven. Now he energizes the children of disobedience, which is all of us before we came to Christ. What does he energize us to do? One of those things, one of those desires, is to usurp the throne of God. Now, and if you're filling in, verse point two, people energized by the devil have the same ambition. Now, let me ask you something. What happens when you get these individuals who are energized by Satan to usurp God's rule? What happens when you get those individuals together in a group and you call them a nation? How does that play out? How does that desire play out? We don't have to wonder about that. God, te God tells us that in Psalm 2. Go over to Psalm 2. Note what we've got here. Here you've got this spirit being, and he has a desire to usurp the throne of God. And he's cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve listened to him. Now he energizes all children of disobedience. Children of disobedience? What do you mean they're children of disobedience? How did disobedience come in? It's because the ruler has rules and laws and they disobey them. They want to throw off those constraints. They want to break that bondage. They want to usurp his rule. And if he says don't eat of the tree, why you can just count on it. They're going to eat of the tree. Now what happens when you get those kind of people together in a group? And you call them a nation. Here's what happens. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? The word heathen is a term that sometimes is translated in the Bible, the Gentiles or even the nations. Of course, the nations began in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel when God said scatter and replenish the earth and they didn't want to do that and they got grouped together. What happens when you get groups of people like that together and you call them a nation? Why do the heathen nay rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings, now who's a king? A king's a ruler over these nations or a nation. The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together. They get together in world summits. They have climate change meetings. They have peace conferences. They have a United Nations. They meet in Geneva. 
They're going to talk about the, you know, the environment. They're going to talk about, you know, the world's population. They're going to have health meetings. What happens when you get the world's rulers together? You know what the Bible says? This is looking at it from a divine standpoint. I doubt that these men and women know what they're doing, but this is from a divine standpoint. God knows what they're doing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and that's a reference to the Messiah, the Lord's king, Jesus Christ. Here's what they say. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Here are these people that get together in parliaments and they get together in senates and they get together in council meetings and they get together in conferences and G7s and G20s and G whatever and they get together in these meetings and you know what's going on? And I don't want to just down these people and just kind of blow them away like with a shotgun. I'm sure there's much good that takes place and we do need rulers and Romans 13 says God put them over us to rule them. And if we didn't have that kind of rulers, we'd probably destroy each other. I mean, we've got to have some rulers. We are so bad. The, the, the energy that this spirit gives to us is so bad, we'll just destroy each other. Wouldn't be amongst Christians, right? Oh, no. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? I get to sit on the left hand and the right hand. These are the pillars of the church. We would destroy each other. And so there's this church split. We want red carpet and they want blue. We can't even get along. <laughs> we are so bad. But you get these people together in nations. You know what these people want to do? And I'm not, I'm not just blasting the world rulers, folks. I'm just taking it as God puts it. You know what happens when they get together in these conferences? In essence, the point is they're trying to throw off the restraints of God. Do they know that? Probably not. I don't, I don't think they begin a G20 meeting and say, you know, what did God say? Let's see if we can get rid of that. But you know what the world's like. And they'll, they'll go so far. I mean, it's obvious when they make rules that, you know, some countries can't have the Bible. People can't convert to Christianity. You can't witness those kinds of things. I mean, that's, that's quite obvious. You know, but here's worshiping the creature more than the creator. And all of these meetings about this and throwing off the things of God. And, of course, it's very obvious in our day and age. And I, I, I just mentioned this by way of illustration. I'm not, I'm not trying to stir the pot and get us all talking about this in the conference. We don't, but, you know, there's this parliament and, 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 you know, the same gender marrying each other. All of this. What's going on? Here is God's, folks. Here is God, here's God's counsel. In a sense, here is what God sees that men don't see. Here's looking at this from divine viewpoint. What you've got are these people. You've got the devil who wanted to throw off God's restraint, and he energizes the children of disobedience. And when you get all of those people together in a nation, you know what they want to do? They elect kings who want to help them throw off the restraint. This is the history of mankind. Rebellion against God. That's their ambition. So what's God think about that? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Now I'm just going to take the Bible at its word. Okay, I don't want to... I don't want to make it seem like God's doing... You know, I don't want to explain and interpret this 
you know, and, and make God be doing more things than what he's doing. I'm just going to take it. When Parliament meets and when the United Nations meets and they're making laws against God, God sits in heaven and he just laughs. <laughs> and beyond that, it says the Lord shall have them in derision. That's a word that means to mock or deride them. I'm just going to leave it at that, but that's what God says he does in heaven. That's what's going on right now in heaven when he looks down. Now, be careful. We are all weighted against authority. So let's not take that and just, and just feed our flesh. <laughs> you know, ah, oh, that's politicians. You can't believe it. Let's not feed our flesh, okay? Let's just take it as God says it, but that is what God says. And remember, God's a sovereign ruler. I think we need to be careful about just laughing. I mean, we know what they are saying, and we pray for them and deal with them. If, if, you know, but Moses didn't even speak ill of the devil. I think you know, we don't want to feed our flesh. But anyway, I just throw that out. But that is God's picture. And then, and then he speaks to them. And he only speaks one word. He only has one thing to say. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You know what God speaks? He only speaks one thing. He says, listen, I've got a king. I've got a king. And then he speaks, then he lets the king speak. Verse 7, the king now speaks. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Here's what the sovereign ruler, the ancient of days, said to the son of man. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said to me. He said to me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Acts 13.33 identifies that day as the resurrection. Verse 8, here's what the, here's what the ancient of days says. Ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. They want to throw off the government of God. And God says to this other figure, you ask for it and you can have it all. And ultimately in verse 9, it says, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 sometime. Not here, but you just put that down. You go to that sometime, and that's exactly what he does. The king will come on a white, on a white stallion, and he will rule with a rod of iron. So you know what the nations are counseled to do? The counsel of God. You know what they're counseled to do? You know how he counsels them? Verse 10, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. That's God's counsel for the nations of the world in 2017. Sometimes we live and we look at these things in history and we see that, but we kind of, we're, we're kind of looking at that outside in a bubble, looking back at it as if, we're sort of not part of it. But folks, we are, we are as much a part of this as David was and the people of the Old Testament. And in 2017, God is saying to the, what is it, there are 160 nations in the United Nations or whatever, he's saying to every one of them, you need to kiss the sun. So, 
you have a demonic spirit attempting to usurp the throne of God. And he's cast out and subsequently energizes fallen humanity with the same desire to throw off the rule of God and ultimately to do so as the nations of the earth. But consider this. Out of all of the nations, God chose one nation through which he wants to reveal his divine rule and the blessings that come from it. And that nation is Israel. And that nation, folks, is supposed to be a testimony to all the other nations as to what happens when you submit to Jehovah God. <laughs> it's, as if those, it's as if Israel is to cry out, look at us. Jehovah is the only true and living God. Look at the blessing it is to be ruled by him. And all of the other nations are to be looking at them. But how did, I, how did Israel do with that blessed opportunity? Well, you remember the history of the Judges. You know what the problem was in the book of Judges? Twice it says there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, and it remained that way for about four centuries. And the point is that Israel is supposed to understand that the Lord, that the Lord is their king. But they didn't seem to understand that. So the people go to Samuel and they say, give us a king like the other nations. And God responds, you have done wrong to ask for a king like the other nations when in fact the Lord is your king. But nevertheless, I'll give you a king. And you know your Bible well, folks. Listen, from that point on, there is a tension in Scripture as to whether those kings will submit to the king of heaven. And the Bible has a continual record of this. He did evil in the sight of God. He did evil in the sight of God. He did evil in the sight. He did right in the sight. He did evil. He did evil. And there's this tension as to what those kings will do now in relationship to the king of heaven and the sovereign ruler. And you know the history. Those who submit to God's rule are blessed and those who don't are cursed. And the whole history of the kings of Israel is this issue again and again. Will they accept the government of God? And over and over, God demonstrates to them that when they break his laws and restraints, it's always disaster. Did Israel get the point? No. And eventually, they divide it into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom is utterly apostate, and so God sends the Syrians against them. The southern kingdom does a little bit better, but eventually they go wayward too, and God has to send the Babylonians against them. And literally, folks, really, they have never recovered from that. Until, of course, and we'll get there, the king comes back. But, so that the Assyrians... And the Babylonians don't think that they are the king of the earth. God, you remember, destroyed both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So they too would know that there is just one king and he's in heaven. So now what will God do to demonstrate his rule over the world? Evil spirit energizes people, get them together, they rebel against God. 
turn into nations. They won't follow God. They throw off his government. So God chooses one nation to show to them, look, the blessing of following God. And that nation, too, rejects all of, all of God's rule. So now what's God going to do? Well, folks, what he's going to do is, number four, there is a point in time when God's going to reveal his kingdom. I mean, his king. Remember Psalm 2? I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. At the appointed time, God brought into existence, so to speak, not, I mean, he was eternal, but God brought here to the earth his king and his kingdom. Listen to these verses. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What did Gabriel say to Mary? You will bear a son, and the Lord God will give, you, give unto him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And remember Matthew 2, how it records the wise men coming and asking, Where is he that is born? The king of the Jews. And at the appointed time, God revealed his kingdom. And folks, what's remarkable is that when Christ began his earthly ministry, do you remember that the theme of a kingdom and divine rule was at the centerpiece of his preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you trace that through his ministry. This area of the government of God and submitting to his rule. And then, of course, throughout his entire ministry, he continually demonstrated that he was the king of that kingdom and that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. Think of the miracles that Christ demonstrated. He has authority over demons and with a word, with one word, can cast out an unclean spirit. He then takes 12 men into a boat and a storm arises and he demonstrates he has rule over nature and with a word can calm a storm. He stands in the front of the boat and looks out of the storm and says, be muzzled. Peace, be still. Woo. Nature obeys him. And he demonstrates his power over disease and heals all that are brought to him. He even enters the realm of death and demonstrated that he's the king there too. And it was all designed by the sovereign ruler to show people that all realms of life submit to the king. Why don't you submit? The animal kingdom submits, nature submits, the demons submit, death submits, What's wrong with you? Now, how do those people feel about this man ruling over them? Well, they literally said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, and they crucified him. They totally rejected the messianic king that God set on his holy hill. But of course, in the end, we all know that God raised him from the dead and then exalted him to his own right hand. And his king is, folks, his king is reigning right now. Philippians 2. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And folks, the fact is that from the right hand of God, Christ reigns right now. 
And the way he demonstrates that reign in the lives of individuals is by offering to them terms of pardon. And guilty people who accept those terms of pardon and acknowledge him as king can be saved. Listen to these words. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord... Now, someday every, everyone's going to do that. But if you will do that right now and believe in your heart that after the nations did their worst to him, but if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved right now. You will be delivered. And wherever there's an individual who accepts those terms of pardon, who accepts him for who he is and gladly subjects themselves to him, who yields to his kingship and his authority... Someone believes and accepts those things. There's pardon for that individual in the court of heaven. And he's declared righteous. He's declared justified in that court. Amazing. Now, what does all of that mean for us right now? What it means for us now, folks, is that we are now waiting to be taken to rule and reign with him. Are you following history in your mind? Before man, fallen humanity, Tower of Babel, the nations come into existence, reject it. God brings his king. You know, there's a nation, Israel, and, and they reject him too, so God brings his king. So where are we at right now in that timeline? What are we supposed to be doing as his people? What we're doing is waiting to be taken to rule and reign with him. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. <clears throat> to him that overcometh... See, Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. We are waiting for him to come and take us to sit down in his throne with him. And that means, number six, that the king at that point then will exercise his rule and deliver seven years of cataclysmic judgment upon the earth. Revelation 4 through 19, 6 through 19. In other words, there's coming a day when the lion of the tribe of Judah, I use that term because that's what's used of him in Revelation chapter 5, when the lion of the tribe of Judah will go to the one on the throne, the Ancient of Days, and will take a scroll out of his hand. And he will then break the seals of that scroll. And when he does, he will send unprecedented judgment on the inhabitants of the world. And in, when those judgments climax, three great things will come to pass. Number one, Revelation 19 he will personally appear on a white horse to make war with the nations. He is called faithful and true, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he will smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, just like Psalm 2 said. And on his vesture and on his thigh there's a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Second climactic event of those judgments is that satan remember that spirit <laughs> satan will then be bound for a thousand years only to be released to deceive the nations but this time god's done with them and with a word 
or with a certain action, he just completely burns them up. He's done with them. And then there will be the great white throne judgment from which all the dead are judged by the king. All judgment is given unto him, he said. And that then ushers in the last reference to God's throne and his rule over the affairs of men. Do you know where that's at? The last reference to God's throne and his rule over men. And it's in Revelation 22, verse number 3. Look at that. <clears throat> Revelation 22, 3. Here's this wonderful scene <clears throat> in heaven. And it says in Revelation 22, 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. In heaven there will be no more curse, but there will be the throne of God. Listen, folks, in heaven where people, can you uh, picture this? In heaven where people are totally redeemed and entirely delivered from sin, God still rules. Man still needs ruled over. And in that day, his servants, it says, will serve him. If I can add this word, folks, his servants will really serve him with their hearts. And I say really because we attempt to today. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is very weak in doing that. But in that day, when we are glorified, we will really serve God with all our hearts. So we've got that demonic spirit, and his desire was to usurp the throne. And when he was cast out of heaven, he now energizes all fallen humanity to do the very same thing. And when those people get grouped into nations, their, their desire is, and we see it in the world today, is to throw off all the restraints of God and to rule over themselves, to make goodness come from their own words and their own policies. And so God, to try to manifest himself, chose out of those nations one nation, and he said, look, you be my people, and you show to the other nations what it's like, the blessing it is to have me rule over you. And those people, as Brother Mitchell's been sharing with us, Pastor Mitchell's been sharing with us, those people got so enamored with themselves and so self-centered that they threw off the rule as well. So God brought his king in. God brought his king in. And that kingdom, that king manifested to humanity that he really is the king over heaven and earth. He entered every realm of earth, and he conquered it all, and he showed that. And people are to submit to him. And some of us here today, hopefully all of us here today, have done that. And if that's the case, then what we're doing is now waiting for the king to return and take us home to rule and reign with him. When that happens, there will be then seven years of this incredible judgment in which God again will show himself as the creator of the world. And Revelation 4 will show that he has the right to do with people as he wants because they will not submit to him. No man will stand with him without an excuse. Or with an excuse, they will, they will all be judged. And once God completely deals with individuals and the nations, then we will enter eternity. And there the throne of God will rule over us and we will serve him for all eternity. If you follow that, you have a great overview of human history. 
Here's the context for Daniel 7 with the Ancient of Days sitting upon his throne. Here is Scripture's presentation of human history with regards to the kingdom of God and the Ancient of Days as the sovereign ruler. Now, what, does all, what are we to make of all of that? What does, what does God's rule over history teach us? What do we find in it? I'll just mention three things. Number one, folks, it provides great comfort for us. It provides great comfort for us. God rules over all. There will be false Christs who will deceive many. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be widespread apostasy as many turn away from the truth. People will call good evil and evil good. Do 2 Timothy chapter 3, there will be hatred and bitterness and strife and all kinds of problems and difficulties and people literally trying to devour one another. How can people not be alarmed in such circumstances? What about the wars out there? What's going to happen here? What's going to take place with this natural disaster, the rain that just floods everything? What's going to take place over in Iraq? What about you know, the, the, the world's religions that are rising up and all the bombings? And you know, is that going to come here? And what are we going to do? And oh, Lord, what's happened? Lord, just come and take us all to heaven. Well, great, but you may not see fit to do that this week. So what are we supposed to do? fret and fear and push panic buttons write all kinds of letters wear sandwich boards up and down the highway and you know get on the phone and stir everybody up and just you know get a great big spoon and stir the whole pot and get the all the whole christian community just just wound up tired in a fiddle and whoa we got to do something you know <laughs> maybe we ought to just look to the ancient of days and say you know lord you're in control and, you know, we'll do our part, and we have a vote, and, and, and we'll do our part. We need to do what we need to, but we don't panic. We just lay awake in the middle of the night and think, wow, what in the world's going on? I mean, what about my kids? What about my great, 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 great grandkids? They might not even be able to ride horses someday. I mean, you know how it is, folks. We really, we really get in a dither. Just, folks, we really get in a dither just like the unconverted do. It's the same. What are we supposed to make of all of this for Christians? What was Daniel supposed to make? He is in exile. And what we can do, folks, is find comfort. And if we're asked to eat meat that we're not supposed to, we can say to Melzar, you know, could I try eating some pottage? And if the king takes us and throws us into the fiery furnace, he can take care of us and we can come out not even smelling like smoke if that's his will. And if, you know, we pray and they, they you know, they looking at us through the window, there he is praying again, and they throw us in the den of lions, they give us bread and water like Micaiah, they throw Jeremiah into the pit? Well, we can look to God. We can find some comfort there. I'm not saying those things are easy. I'm not saying that we wouldn't face the pain and the suffering and feel in our bodies and the hunger in our stomach. But we do know that things aren't out of control. Things are not out of control. 
Just go back and just trace this history and God has been in control all along and he's going to be in control in the future because he's got to get his king here. And we can take comfort in that. We can take comfort for our children when they have to get out and mix with the children of the world in academic settings. We can trust God. If we've raised our children right, we can trust God when they have to get out and get a job or they can get married. Or We can trust the Lord. God's in control. We can take, folks, great comfort in that. We're not victims of the whims and caprice of earthly sovereigns. If he sent his son to die for us, how shall he not also richly give to us freely all things? I think we can take that from this. We can be comforted in our day and age. I think secondly, we can draw this, and I won't spend a long time here, folks, but we can draw this conclusion to think about history now. Think about what we've seen. To the degree which people submit to God's throne, to that degree they will enjoy the blessing of God and have things set right in their life. To the degree which people submit to God's throne, to that degree they will enjoy the blessing of God and have things set right in their life. And history bears that out. When people, like we talked about the other, other day, when people yield to God's good words, from his words come goodness. And when people don't yield to God's good words... They don't experience that. To the degree that we will do that, we will be a tree planted by rivers of living water that bring forth our fruit in our season. And in a dry and parched land, in a society and culture that we're fearful of, if we will be faithful to God, we can be green leaves in a drought time. We can still thrive. We're not doomed. We're not just, we're not victims of culture. We can actually thrive in the desert and in the wilderness. And when people who really are searching get up above us and look down, they'll see a green thread of Christian people wandering its way right through the wilderness. And they'll say, hey, that's what I'm looking for. There's all this fighting and strife and difficulty around me, but you know what? Those people love each other. Christ said that. By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you'll love one another. And to the degree which we, folks, even as Christian people, yield to God, it will go well with us. We need to teach our children that. They're growing up in this incredible world. I mean, it is amazing what technology can do. I mean, the, the advances and the medical things and, and the scans that they can give you, the MRIs. I mean, it's phenomenal what people can, what, you know, what God, the wisdom God has given to men to, to do that can sustain life and help us. It's amazing. And our kids are growing up in this phenomenal world. But they also need to learn, most importantly, that the degree to which they submit to God is the degree to which they'll enjoy the good things from the words of God. You need to learn that. You need to teach them, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Kids need to learn that. What a great verse to teach them. Put it on your wall. Encourage them to yield to the king. Show them the history of things. Show them where this is going. And then thirdly, particularly in light of the conference to praise the Lord for his greatness. I think thirdly and lastly, 
we can draw this conclusion, the one in Psalm 47, verse number 7. Listen to this, Psalm 47, 7. For God is the king of all the earth. We got that? This little history that we've seen? The survey? God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Understanding what? What do we sing praises with? Well, understanding. We sing praises, folks, with the understanding that he's the king of the earth. He's in control of all things. It's okay. <laughs> We're going to be okay. Because the king is leading us. And if he, has to, if he has to put a pillory cloud between us and Pharaoh, he'll do that to take care of us. And if he's got to put a bright light and blind the man who's coming to persecute our home, he'll knock him to the ground on the road to Damascus with a bright light. The king can do what needs to be done. And if he chooses to take us home to heaven, isn't that what we exalt anyway? I want to go to heaven. Why do we seem to fear it so much? Well, I can understand, and I say it for the comfort of maybe a mother or father's here. I mean, I can understand as a parent if, you know, you're 35 and you've got four little children and something doesn't look good. And, you know, I can understand that, that anxiety. I mean, I'm a dad too. And I have to say, in light of that, I mean, I really was thankful when my kids finally got old enough and are kind of on their own. I thought, well, and, I, and I've often thought that, you know, I got two more and need to get married. And I thought, man, if I can get, the one, if I can get my daughter married, I'll be happy. <laughs> not because not I'm done with her, but finally, finally, if something happens to me at my age, finally, you know, I mean, I'm not that old, but if something happens to me at my age, finally, okay, there's somebody else who can take care of her. And I've got a father's heart, too. I can understand that concern, that anxiety. But we can exercise the same faith here as what we exercise at salvation. Lord, my soul is yours for eternity. Take care of it. And we can do the same thing here. And with that understanding, we can praise God. And we can do that when we sing. Sing praises with understanding. So here's God, the Ancient of Days, and he rules over all human history. And right now, we're just waiting for him to send his king and take us home to heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning and the opportunity to look into your word. Father, we thank you that you are over all. And Father, we have to confess how weak we are in this regard sometimes. We do panic and we worry and we fret, become anxious at the things of life. And... But Father, we thank you for the opportunity again this morning to see that you are the sovereign ruler. And the things are okay when we yield to you encourage us today lord if there's someone here this morning and maybe they are anxious about something um, father your admonitions in scripture to pray and to give things to you as an acknowledgement that you understand we do become anxious at times but lord we thank you for the 
acknowledgments in your word that if we will yield to you, you can give us peace that guards our heart. And do that today for someone who's here that may be concerned, maybe fretting, some uncertainty in the future. Help them to realize that you are the sovereign ruler and you really are in control. And as their heavenly father really has good things in store for them. So bless your word to our heart today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Pastor Davies. <clears throat>